This is Peak Earth. I'm Case Bradford. Thank you for tuning in to this episode with the great Rafe Kelly. I really enjoyed this episode. We touched on many of my favorite topics and I was able to learn more about many of the powerful aspects of my life to share them with everybody listening. And this conversation was somewhat surreal. I recorded it on my 33rd birthday. Starting to feel like I'm getting up there in age, getting a little old. And uh, so also somewhat solidifying into who I am as a man after decades of searching and, and pondering about who I am to be, what's going on in the world, and, and what, what is my place in it all. I had been learning a ton from Rafe's podcast, Evolve, Move, Play, and his YouTube channel. And it's also a seasonal retreat, which I'm hoping to get up to someday. So it was somewhat surreal to be connecting in dialogue with Rafe and he's a brilliant guy. I learned a ton, really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you do as well. I appreciate you tuning in to listen. Very grateful for your attention. I hope this provides value. And without any more rambling from me, I hope you enjoy this episode with Rafe Kelly. How's it going? It's good. How are you, Case? Doing well. Really excited to be with you. I've been listening to your podcast, Evolve, Move, Play, over the past few weeks and have gotten a lot out of it. It's amazing how I can be living my life, just going through the day, you know, interacting with the internet as we all do. And then all of a sudden you discover uh, somebody or something that just unlocks this whole new world of ideas and, and concepts and, and energy. And it, you've done that for me. So I'd like to start by just saying thank you for the work that you're doing and the creativity that you're putting out there. It's, it's meaningful for me and I've, I've learned a lot and I've, I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. I really appreciate that. It's, it's it's really great always to hear that, you know, putting this stuff out on the internet has an impact on somebody. Yeah, it's it's cool. The um so the the podcast evolve move play. I'm I'm curious what your journey with that has been just with the art of podcasting, the medium. How has that changed your life or shaped the way that you sort of see the see the world? Yeah, it's been pretty big actually. I uh I think I started getting told that I should start a podcast like all the way back in 2014. And I, I'm not a technically savvy person. I don't know. It just wasn't that attractive to me at first. But I was traveling a lot at that time teaching. And I, I thought like, hey, man, it's like I'm meeting these amazing people who like the conversations we're having would be really great for people to hear um, around. So originally I, I wanted to do all my podcasts in person when I was on the road. Uh, meeting up with people. So my first podcast was with uh, Kelly Sturette, um from the Ready State or Mobility Wad. And I was in San Francisco teaching. And uh, I think we actually did a, uh, a workshop at um, San Francisco CrossFit as well that weekend. And then we sat down and, and, and did the first podcast. And then I think I did a few more that were just in person at that stage. But the, the turnaround time to get an in-person podcast was just kind of not feasible at that stage. So we get a, got a few episodes out and then it kind of just sat in the background as a thing that we might do for a while. And then we decided to go to Zoom and uh, yeah, did it and got some good response and started to get chats with people who I really learned a lot from and felt really inspired by it. And then various things happened and it was hard to keep it going. <laughs> you know, a couple times I've had to put it down. Uh, but over the years, it's been a place where I've made some of the most important connections, right? So John Verveke has become this huge mentor and 
a friend of mine, and for instance, he's somebody who I met through uh, inviting him on my podcast. And um, yeah, so I just, I've learned, I guess I've definitely have kind of figured out over the years what I'm trying to do with the podcast and how to approach it, how to research and prepare for it, um, how I approach different types of guests. You know, it's, it's a different thing when I invite someone from the parkour community who, you know, they're familiar with me, I'm familiar with them, we've known each other for, for years versus like inviting on a really, uh, you know, kind of exceptional academic who has dozens of scientific papers that I might want to peruse and how much of that can I actually do. Um, so that, that's kind of, I guess that's my journey with it so far. What I've really enjoyed is the way that you present deep thoughts and integrate powerful concepts like meaning into more tangible, practical movement practice and, and fitness style approaches, if, if you want to call it that. One interesting mm -hmm. concept that you like to bring up is, is the idea of, of how philosophy kind of started with the gymnasium and, and how back in ancient Greece is intertwined, like they were inseparable movement practice and philosophy, being able to think and move are really more one in the same. And I've found that to be really true in my life where I'm unable to really think clearly if I'm stagnant, like I, I need a certain degree of movement for my mind to be able to, to work properly. And even the way different movement practices or movement styles interact, the way my mind works has been so fascinating as well. And it's something that not too many people are talking about, but it really is a powerful part of life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the more I kind of study into this, the more I really believe in kind of a movement first philosophy of, of mind philosophy of, of being uh, movement first ontology. Uh, you know, Descartes famously said, cogito ergo sum, right? I, I think therefore I am, but I think it's more movere ergo sum, right? I move, therefore I am. The movement is sort of the, the beginning of everything. So, if you look at it evolutionarily, you look at it uh, even uh, developmentally, we start essentially with appetites and aversions and the capacity to move ourselves towards and away from those things. And that's it. We don't have really thoughts so much in the beginning. Uh, even emotions are sort of downstream of guiding these action potentials. So when you're a newborn baby, you're basically just wired up as a, as a nursing machine, nursing and pooping machine. And you are equipped with emotions to, to drive you towards nursing and to drive, you know, and to, to alarm your mother or caretaker that you need to be taken care of when you, uh, you need to be cleaned or held or comforted. And so those basic, those basic, capacities, that's, that's where we start. And as we begin to map the world before we ever have a narrative sense of self, before we ever have abstract thoughts in our head, we are mapping the world through touching it. We are mapping ourselves through movement. A small baby is, you know, when they bring their, their foot to their mouth, like their mouth is the most wired up. There's more there's more motor control in the mouth at that stage than anything else. There's more of the brain that's devoted to the mouth than anywhere else. And so they're literally figuring out what a foot is by putting it in their mouth. Like, oh my God, what are toes? What is going on here? Um, and so they're mapping their body. And as they move to uh, 
to grasping objects and pulling themselves up on the world, like the meaning that's intrinsic in reality is actually being constantly revealed to them through movement, which then kind of outlets into uh, to emotion, right? So they fall down and they get upset. And when a baby is, when a baby has an emotion, that emotion is automatically physical, right? Your babies don't like get really mad in their head and just sit there with their thoughts. They scream and arch their backs, right? And then when they're happy, they giggle and smile. So we, we, we've abstracted so much of what we do into this kind of headspace that we don't realize that all of its primal um, progenitors happened in this physical aspect. And so if you think about something as simple as like, we, we think we think, and that thinking is somehow just like this, this disembodied spirit in our head, but we actually think using physical tools. So we, if you have a narrative in your head of words, not everyone's thinking is words, but if you're, if you're, if you're making words in your head, you're actually firing the motor control for those verbalizations that we, you would use in your throat just at a very, very subaudible level. So you, you first learn to speak and then through learning to speak, you now have a grammar that you can use to think and you learn to inhibit the, the, um, you learn to inhibit the circuitry associated with the production of speech sufficiently that it happens below conscious awareness, but it's still running. And so thinking is, is actually talking to yourself. Um, and then if you learn to write, you can actually kind of write in your head when you, you know, seeing the world, which is a physical act, right? Seeing the world is not a passive act. Your eyes have to dart around. Babies don't actually see what we see. As soon as they come out, they see this blooming, buzzing confusion. Um, and the eye has to become trained to pick up what is in the landscape and to be able to attune to the, to the environment. And so if you're imagining physical spaces in your brain, that same thing is happening. You're, you're playing out these tiny little motor things. If you close your eyes and think, you'll find that your eyes are moving as you think. If you can draw or sculpt or build, you have architecture in your brain that's motoric that allows you to play these things out in the abstract. But all that abstract capacity that we have is actually rooted fundamentally in movement first. You can't make someone a good abstract carpenter without having them actually build things. We've lost, we've lost so much of that understanding and that integration and that symbiosis and, and we're really suffering as, as a result of that on a on a collective level and it's great to hear that story from from the beginning because it's you know we have no consciousness of, of being a baby and just getting milk fresh from the boob and just sitting there pooping nothing makes any sense you know we've got that that wild heritage that we all kind of spawned from into the world set up as it is and i am in my early thirties now, and it's wild to be in this world where there's so much suffering and there's a lot of people trying to figure out the solutions to the suffering. And we've got ideas like this where it's like, okay, here's a principle movement first. 
the, the you know mm-hmm. stagnation is, is going to kill everyone's kind of stuck at a computer for most of the day or you know stuck at a car and then when they decide it's time to go you know work out it's like i'm gonna sit in my box the car to like a new box the gym and i'm gonna like sit in a box called like this certain machine to do maybe or like on a treadmill it's, yep. it's really bizarre how far we've gotten from you know what could be described as like nature or the you know the there's some fundamental sort of coherence with, with the way things are it's it's exceptionally bizarre and it's always boggled my mind and i love the way that you've, you've presented a lot of, of ways that we can sort of reconnect and realign movement and is one of them. And, and through your practice that, that you founded, Evolve Move Play, there's also, um, so it's not just the name of your podcast, also the name of, of the movement practice that you've created where there's retreats up mm-hmm. in Washington to be able to reintegrate to, to many of these you know powerful forces of nature. There's movement being one of them, nature being another, mindfulness and, and community, those being the four pillars or, or principles that you've outlined as ways to sort of reconnect. Um, and, and yeah. uh, how, how do you see the, the world? I, that's a massive question. And I, I don't want to just throw that. How do you see the world? It's a crazy place out there, but it's, man, there's Use a lot of people eyes. struggling with this. It's Start. just it's so crazy, man. Hmm? It's just, it's just wild. Like basically what, what you talked about, the progress of, of growing from a baby, you know, into an operating adult, we're, we're mm-hmm. given all these tools, all these perceptions to sort of install into the lens of our mind to kind of perceive the world and it, it almost leads to illness the ones the ones that culture has given us it's essentially guaranteed in order mm. to be healthy and, and vibrant in this world you kind of have to be strange you have to go against the grain you have to kind of create a new way be a trailblazer be a weirdo in the true sense of the word weird meaning like following your own fate and your own path and yeah it's, it's just yeah it's, it's it's kind of spurred a bit of a just word salad for me but i hope hopefully that lands in, in some way in some way too yeah, I mean, I, I'll just pick up on something you said, which is the that to be healthy, we have to step outside of what our culture is offering us. The the the, the prefix dinner of of uh, of of Western culture right now is is profoundly unhealthy for us, and you know that's not just in the food system, but it's at every level. So, if you when you don't use tissue habitually that tissue weakens to the point where it becomes injury prone um and not only does the tissue weaken the neurological map of the tissue is degraded and atrophies so when you um you know let's say you tear up an ankle and you put it in a cast right people think about the tissue right i need to i need to get the muscle back i need to get the ligaments back they don't realize is that the nerves themselves are atrophying and then the representation of the of the of the foot in the mind is atrophying in the brain the brain itself is losing all of the fine tuning of that map and the way your brain tends to work is if it's not if something's not mapped well it's threatening so you know you go through your life like okay i i, I have a body and it's kind of getting me from place to place where I sit in my box and look at my box um, to earn some money that I can put in some other box, right? Um, What's happening all the time is that you're actually losing the map of your body. Unfortunately, for many of our our kids now, they never even gained a normal functional human map of their body because they didn't, they were constrained from acting, right? It's 
we are creatures who've been cast casted from birth from exposure to the normal physical stressors. Katie Bowman uh, is a really wonderful author who talks about a lot of this stuff, but she talks about the fact that if you if you raise a tree in a greenhouse, it is weak. It's physically weak because trees grow stronger in relationship to the wind that they experience and the, the loading of heavy rain and all of these things. So tree tissue is just like our tissue. It, it has to be stressed to grow. So if you take a tree that's been raised in a, in a greenhouse and you simply put it outside, it's likely to, to break and maybe die because it doesn't have the, the structural strength to allow it to survive winds. So we are doing that to ourselves all the time. We are, we are casting ourselves from the stressors that would normally allow us to go through development. And so the map of your body is how you develop. It's a big part of how you develop. And if it's not, if you never have a reason to be able to feel the difference between scapular elevation and scapular depression, then that's just going to die in your brain until you need it. <laughs> you know, and then, then a lot of times you get injured. Um, so modern life is, is a series of underuse injuries, uh, compounded by overuse injuries, because when we sit for hours a day, we are loading tissue, right? But we're, we're loading the same tissues all the time while leaving the vast majority of our tissues underloaded. And because we have something called force coupling, um, like those tissues, they, they have to work together. And so if you leave a weak tissue in that chain, it makes everything else more injury prone. So uh, the example I like to give is my hand. So if you if you look at someone who say, is a, maybe a regular office worker who goes and does CrossFit, you'll see that they have a line of callus just below their fingers and maybe on their fingers. And it's very thickly developed skin there. But if you if you move down to maybe the middle of their hand, and you feel the skin, it's actually not any different than the skin of any other office worker, or very little different. The skin is thin and uncalloused. Now, what happens is when that, um, when that thick, powerful skin now pulls on the soft, undeveloped skin, you have a mechanism for a rip. You have a proportional weakness problem in the distribution of, of development in your hand, the skin in your hand. That's ha that that is happening all the time, all over your body. Now, my hand has been developed through climbing trees and rocks all the time. So instead of a single sort of environment of stress where I'm getting exactly the same kind of load on exactly the same part of my hand every time, my hand is is interacting with a huge diversity of of surfaces, which then deform and put pressure on all the skin. So I have yeah, I have more callus underneath the fingers than in other parts of my hand, but my hand is actually calloused from my palm to my fingertips. And so that, that relatively more hypertrophy just below the fingers, it doesn't have the same potential to create a rip because the skin below it is stronger. And I think this is essentially what's happening all over. I was, uh, you know, one of the big debates is like, why are athletes getting injured so often right now? We have the most explosive, powerful athletes in history. You know, they've got all these advanced training mechanisms. They have all of the exogenous hormones and all sorts of supports that, you know, they could have. And maybe that is contributing to injuries too. But I think fundamentally the problem that someone who's playing in the NFL has is that they're actually sedentary. 
they're they're hyperactive along a very specific set of of modalities, but they're actually very sedentary in between it. So you, you get up and you go sit down in a meeting and you're on a plane and you're going here and you're there. And then when you're, when you're done with practice, you're exhausted. So you just go play video games or sit down or hang out, right? You're not going to go garden <laughs> very often. Um, and so the, the diversity of movement that the body's experiences is very low. Um, and so you have the overdevelopment of some tissues combined with underdevelopment of many tissues, which is a mechanism for lots of soft tissue injuries, non-contact injuries. So that's my theory. I mean, I don't believe anybody's gone out and really done a scientific study of it. Um, but I suspect that when the average football player worked a working class job in the off season, that they were less injury prone because they had a higher diversity of movement in their ball uh, in their movement uh, movement diet essentially. Um, so I've kind of gone all over the place with my answer there, but I, I think that we need to conceptualize um, ourselves as existing in a environment of over specialization that le- that is essentially undernourishing the vast majority of us, while over utilizing specific aspects, and that's guaranteed to create injury. It makes me think of a bit of what we talked about earlier, where the movement shapes the mind, where our body-mind are one, the way that we move interacts with, with the way that we think. And if we're all sort of in these boxes, as, as we outlined, that tends to constrain the mind and sort of focus it and specialize it in, in <laughs> ways that we're seeing that manifest, where the go-to workouts for even high-level football players where there's, you know, multi-million dollar contracts on the line, they're still got this singular focus where you go do this really intense workout and then there's a lot of, of sitting in, in chairs. And I was, I was recently reading this book called Muscles and Meridians by Philip Beach and he speaks about these archetypical postures of repose where you're able to tune the body by having a floor-based living where you're not sitting in a chair because that posture really constrains the body, almost like kinking a hose. The blood has to travel from your feet up to your brain and it requires a lot of blood pressure. Instead, you're sitting Japanese style, like Seiza or 90-90 on the floor, um, cross-legged, a deep squat. All these are ways to tune the body and, and allow for our body-mind to you know, rest and recuperate and regenerate in ways that sitting on a, a chair uh, cramped in a seated position is not, is not able to. And I know that with you, you were a high-level parkour athlete training mostly in, in urban environments as, as parkour is popularly seen. And then you took that, you evolved that and, and brought it into the trees, into nature. And now you've got a much more diverse mm-hmm. set of terrain to work with, to map, to interact with. It's, it's going to be much different than, yeah. than a city. How did that shape your mind and the way that you sort of perceived life? Yeah, it's hard to say in some sense because it's been ongoing for so long. Right. And it's also, I, it's not like I sort of had a particularly normal experience of Western culture to start with. Like, you know, my story starts with, I grew up on 12 acres in the woods that was homestead by my family in 1920. And my dad was a a counterculture hippie natural builder. And my mom, when I was little, was gardening and feeding us most of the food that we ate out of our garden. So I had some unique experiences of, of that. I had enormous freedom. And then I was homeschooled from third grade through 
my sophomore year of high school or fourth grade through my sophomore year of high school. And so I would actually spend um, only about two hours doing seated schoolwork a day. And then um, because I was the only kid who was getting homeschooled, I would just spend the rest of the day wandering around in the woods. So then I had my more sedentary period of life in a sense where I basically my life got a little bit more standard American as I went from young childhood into my teen years. And between like 12 and 15, I, there was a period where we got a computer and I became super addicted to the computer and I was just downloading Napster stuff all the time and arguing on internet forums and watching way too much pornography. Um, and I was sitting and sitting and sitting. Um, so, but then I, I got into gymnastics and I started playing basketball and I got back into the martial arts and, and I was, you know, hiking a little bit. So it all kind of has blended over time for me. And then going into my 20, in my early twenties, I discovered parkour. I was already taking gymnastics. I got back into mixed martial arts, uh, you know, six months after I started parkour and I was only doing parkour primarily in urban spaces for about a year. And then I discovered Methode Natural and started diving deep into moving in nature. Then I moved down to Seattle and I started a parkour gym and then I was training a little bit more in the urban space, but then I discovered these really amazing spaces. So I would say that I probably only spent about three or four years of my whole 18 years of doing parkour, primarily training in the city. And that nature was where I did most of my training or at least like half my training. Um, a lot of the time. So it's been with me for so long. It's hard to know exactly, you know, I don't have good control group in my own experience, uh, particularly. Uh, but if we go back to like the idea of how does being in the box constrain your thinking? And we think about the eyes themselves, right? So you, you represent the world in your head based on how you've mapped it. And you map it through your vision, which is an active physical process. What are you looking at? What do you actually see? What do you perceive? One of the things that really struck me some years ago was I was, so I had, when I was young, I was really interested in animals and I would like, I knew all about wolves and all these things. And I wanted to start taking an interest in the plants. And my dad was a carpenter. He understood the plants. He had been raised with some kind of like herb lore from his mother as well. So he knew some things about the natural world. And I would ask him to tell me the difference between a fir tree and a, a, uh, and a hemlock tree. And I couldn't keep it straight in my mind. It just wouldn't stick. I just didn't like, for whatever reason, it was not sticky for me. And so I was walking through the woods of Washington state, not able to really tell the difference between a dug fir and a hemlock and a cedar for years. But then I discovered doing parkour and trees. My early adventures in nature weren't really focused on trees. They were mostly focused on like rocks and creeks. So when I moved to Seattle, that was actually when I fell in love with the trees. And we had these amazing trees in this park in Seattle. And I was like, what kind of trees are these? Turned out they were Western red cedars. It was the third most common tree here in the Northwest. But they only form like this when they're in park-like conditions. Um, they have to have plenty of light in order to shoot their their limbs out from the ground. So I had to learn, I started to learn to be sensitive to the information about what kind of tree it was. Now I know what a hemlock is. Now what I know a dug fir is. Now I know what a, a cedar is and the big leaf maples and the oaks. And 
and everything because they afford me something that's really meaningful to me, which is a chance to move in it. So I became very aware of the species of tree and not just the species, but the habitats of tree and the ecologies of tree that created trees that allowed me to do parkour. Um, and then <clears throat> I had a, a nervous breakdown basically and couldn't really do parkour for a little bit, but I was out in nature walking through nature all the time. And I, I started just realizing that I was blind to what was happening in nature because I could see how the tree could afford me the chance to swing, but I didn't understand necessarily why the tree formed the shape that it did or how it was interacting with the overall ecology or how the winds affected it, how the soil affected it, what kind of animals used those trees. You know, what was that web of life that was all around me? And I had become, uh, I had many students at that point who had come through a school in Duval, Washington called the Wilderness Awareness School, which was founded by John Young. And I was getting exposed to the ideas there. And so I was walking through the woods and I, <clears throat> I started having this feeling that I felt like somebody who was walking through a library who was illiterate. I was like, there are stories written into this landscape that I can't read. Um, my eye isn't trained to pick up the birds in the environment. My eye isn't trained to recognize um, the type of wood that's available in different trees. My eye isn't trained to see what's dry tinder that could be used to make a fire. And those are actually, those are the primal predecessors of reading, right? Like we're, we're so, we're so embedded in this extremely novel environment that we just don't even know what we are. Like the reason that you have the capacity to scan your eyes across text and read meaning from it is because your ancestors scanned their eyes across animal tracks and read meaning from that. And so we, we've actually made ourselves blind to those fundamental things. We've made ourselves blind to the, the stories that were central to our existence for all of our evolution until yesterday. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, so I wanted to know, I wanted to know what the woods were telling me, right? What kind of stories? So now when I walk through the woods, I can attune to the birds and they can tell me, are the birds in baseline? Is it mating season? Is there a predator nearby in the environment? Um, I can attune to signals from the trees. Is this a stressed forest? You know, is it a dry forest? Is it a wet forest? Um, is there new pathogens in the environment? And so all of a sudden, the world is actually literally more meaningful. But it's not only more meaningful in some sort of generic sense. It's more meaningful along the lines that are, that are maybe most primarily important to a human being. The stuff that we evolved to be attending to. So in that sense, like, if you think about how is the world represented in your brain? And what kind of brain and what kind of, um, what kind of affordances do you see in the world? what kind of emotional resources are you are available to you uh the capacity to connect deeply to the natural world it it's literally changing you it's changing what the world is inside you which is changing what you are that's deep that is deep and powerful <laughs> thank you that is the 
really important meaning another missing element force of nature part of of life and reality that many people are, are missing going through this experience completely apathetic completely lost feeling like none of it's worth it none of it's you know it's really it's a lack of meaning and and one of the biggest books that turned me on to this concept, The Power of Meaning, was Man's Search for Meaning by, by Viktor Frankl. He was an mm -hmm. Auschwitz survivor, went through the concentration camps and observed that the ones who were in that hellish experience, who did the best, who may have even enjoyed it at times, were the ones who had meaning, the ones who found meaning yeah. in, in the experience, in their lives. And this, for you, was something that you found in nature, something I've found out in nature as well. It's a very powerful aspect of, of being out in the world surrounded by life, bringing life to life and, and finding a relationship there, a, a reason for, for, for being alive. It changes the mind in, in marvelous ways that I never expected. And it is very difficult to put in the words and I'm not even going to try. It's just something that if anyone is curious about, you've got to just go out there and, and spend more time connecting with your local habitat and, and integrating what, what you learn there in, into life. And this word meaning I know it's a very important part of, of your experience and, and your growth as, as you've, you've outlined. What, is it, what does it mean to you now that you've sort of reflected a little bit on it and, and learned a lot about it? Yeah. I mean, for me, the question of meaning came through feeling profoundly transformed by my movement practices, by martial arts first and then parkour and wondering how do you keep growing in the practice how does it like i think in some sense i, I wanted to be a, a lifer in parkour right i didn't want to be somebody who came and uh, went from the sport and so i was looking at people who who did anything for a long period of time people who were able to sustain their joy in a practice long past the period when they were ever going to be a threat to be the best in the world at it or even the best in their local community and so I would ask like old jujitsu jiu athletes and old surfers and stuff like, like, why do you keep going back? Like, you're not, you're, you know, like, is learning a new choke really going to change your ability to defend yourself, right? You're not going to win any gold medals at the stage. Like, what are you doing? Um, and like, they always told me something that had to do with meaning, right? It was like, well, it, it always comes down to like, it transforms me in a, an important way to me, Right. Or this is where like I connect to the things that matter most to me. It's like these the people I meet through training are my family. And I feel connected to them on a deeper level. And so I started really articulating that for myself in my early 30s, um, about 10 years ago. And I started, I started, I, I remember I was being interviewed for a podcast in 2014. And he asked me something about like why practice movement. And I said that the purpose of a movement practice is to unlock truly meaningful experiences. And I'm not sure if I'd articulated before that, but it felt like a real epiphany moment. And after that, I really started kind of digging into that and developing this idea that our, our culture had really, had really sort of invested in this idea of, of self-esteem, right? That if you just like yourself, if you just train yourself to like yourself, that, that, um, that everything will be okay. And that seemed fundamentally misguided to me. I saw people who were shallow and brittle and fragile and reactive, who had developed narcissistic complexes through telling themselves that they 
were great the way that they were. <laughs> um, and it didn't seem like there was any depth to their self-love. And I had had a really interesting experience of, of meeting some, some elders basically from the Appalachian community through uh, a mentor of mine in my early, uh, my early life, eight and 12 years old. And I had seen that they had like this depth of skillfulness across a really wide range of things. They could sing and dance and play music and build their own houses and hunt and fish and farm and, you know, cure their own ham. They could, they knew the Bible front to back. And it seemed like there was, they knew the local medicines and the plants and, and it seemed like there was something there about having a self-worth esteeming and that what gave us self-worth was this broad cultivation of self. Whereas what was happening in our culture was we were taking away the breadth of everyone's self-cultivation to make them the most specialized potential cog in the corporate machine. And then we were just saying like, yeah, you, you can't sing, you can't dance. You can't even have sex. You can't talk to people, <laughs> but love yourself, right? Like accept yourself as you are, because we need you to do the one thing that you have a comparative advantage of 80% of your time and spend the rest of your time consuming products for us. So love yourself the way you are, because that's where you're the best consumer of our products and producer for our capitalist system. And I was like, I don't, I don't think that's the answer. So I, I wrote this thing called the self worth esteeming about that. And, and I started telling stories about my own life and mentors and stuff through my workshops and people, I saw that facts were relatively, they just kind of floated past the students. Right. But when I could bring things into narrative, it hit home for people on another level. So I was looking for a model of what, of what meaning was and a model of, of why narrative was so powerful. And that's when I encountered Jordan Peterson in 2016. And I was blown away. Like everything that I was sort of, so many things that I was kind of feeling out, trying to articulate for myself. I just found that he had said it, <laughs> you know? And I was like, yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. And so then, then I really started to think of, of, of a movement practice as a hero's journey, as a way of embodying the heroic archetype. You, you go out to look at a jump and it's a kind of confrontation with chaos. It's undifferentiated potential. You don't know what's on the other side of that jump. You don't know if you're really going to be able to do it at first and you work yourself through it and you experience fear and it's can be really challenging, um, emotionally. And then you do it and you feel really good and you feel like maybe something changed about you. Maybe you're not just stronger to do that jump. You're just stronger in general. Um, and it felt like, yeah, that's the, that's the journey to the underworld, the confrontation with the dragon and bringing back the elixir. Right. And, and so, so I started conceptualizing everything that way. And then I discovered John Verveke's work and got a deeper idea of what self-transcendent was and about these different layers of knowledge about the four P's, right? It's, it's not just knowing things from a semantic propositional way. You have to develop yourself through creating perspectives. Can you see the world as a bird sees it, right? Can you see the world as a parkour athlete sees it? 
and then having procedural ability, the ability to, to actually do things. It's like, okay, great. You know, you, you read all of Wikipedia, right? Can you build a table? Like who, who really knows stuff, right? The guy who can quote every article or the guy who can actually make something in the world that accomplishes something. I, so I have an older brother who's a, this is my dad's a carpenter and an architect. My older brother is a, was a master carpenter at 18. He built his own house as a senior project and he's an engineer now. And, um, he's very bright, you know, he, he crushed all of his, his scholastic education, but he didn't have the same sort of academic bent that I did early on. He's become much more like me. We've become more similar over the years where we read the same types of stuff, but he didn't read books for years. Um, and, and it was like, everyone would notice that I was smart. It's like, oh, the way you talk, you're so smart. And I was like, yeah, but if, if it's the zombie apocalypse, you want my brother, you don't want me. <laughs> He's going to build you a house where you're not going to die. <laughs> right. Uh, so I came to, yeah, I just came to see that. No, I still can't build a house, but um, maybe one day. Um, so there's, so yeah, so you have to have a procedural and then there's this participatory. How are you transformed, right? It's like, you can have an idea in your head. How many times have you said to yourself, I can't believe I, I did that. Like, how dumb was I to do that? I know that that's not the way you do that. Too many times to count, yeah. <laughs> Knowing it, in your mind, being able to say it doesn't mean you've experienced it. it. Doesn't mean it actually has penetrated you all the way. So for me, a lot of times I've recognized that epiphany isn't new knowledge. It's a new layer of depth of the knowledge. It's that knowledge hitting at a deeper layer. So, so yeah, so I, I discovered, you know, 40 cogs I and uh, the four P's of knowing. And then there's some recent conversations with John uh, maybe over the last year or two, plus obviously just the long-term development of our retreats. Like it's, it's really interesting how John's models and Jordan's models, they kind of map to the stuff that's emergent from the practices that I've, I've done. But I was talking to John about meaning and he was saying, science can't really tell us what the meaning of life is. It's just, we don't have access to that. But science can tell us what, what drives meaning in life. So if you ask somebody, is your life meaningful? They'll say yes or no. And then you can ask them, what makes your life meaningful? And they'll give you answers. And those answers are relatively consistent, right? Social relationships are a huge driver of the sense of meaning in life for everybody. So through our workshops, what we've fundamentally come to believe is there are sort of four fundamental relationships that you need to be connected. So I'll back up for a second. So I, I brought up social relationships. The general idea is that meaning in life is about your connectedness, how connected you are. And we can think of that as like, okay, you have connection, but also what's the depth and sophistication of that connection. So what we've discovered through our workshops is that there's fundamentally uh, four, you can divide it up and say five relationships that give meaning to life. So the first one are the relationships that are internal to the self. So you can think of this as the mind body relationship or the relationships between the aspects of the body, the emotions and the mind, you know, uh, Plato talked about the, the man, which is the rational mind, the, uh, 
the lion, which is like the social aspect of the mind, and then the monster, which are the underlying innate urges. And those have to be integrated. And you can think of the monster as many different monsters, like the lust monster and the anger monster aren't the same monster. But somehow all those things have to enter, that multiplicity has to come into unity. And it can have better unity. And it can have more sophisticated, more connected, more depth, more more bandwidth flowing between the different aspects of the self, more better coordination, right? Just like your, your, you know, you can have better hand eye coordination. You can have better mind emotion coordination. So that's the first layer, but a self, and this is where like the embodiment world and the somatic world, I think they get stuck. And I think that it often kind of gets inverted in a way that's not actually helpful because the body mind isn't designed to operate in isolation. You can, you can sit and do Vipassana for hours. You can lay down and do body scans. You can do Feldenkrais and you can just simply remain a totally incompetent human being. <laughs> and no matter how good you are at like feeling the integration of yourself in being this incompetent, weak, fragile human being, you're still going to be a weak, fragile, incompetent human being when you step off the mat. So you're a body mind, you're embodied in an environment. You're embedded in that environment. What is your relationship to that environment? What kind of affordances for action do you have? What have you cultivated? Can you run, jump, climb, lift, carry, build, cook, dance, right? All those things. As you build your motor capacity to move through the environment, to, to operate on the environment, to build things, to make things, you are increasing your connectedness. You're increasing your true knowledge of the world and through that of yourself. And so you can divide that into the things that we move through, the locomotive aspects and the things that we can work with, which is the manipulative aspects, but fundamentally they're both aspects of the, the physical environment. Then there's the social and relational environment. How well can you connect other people? What's the depth of your capacity to communicate the depth of your capacity to to engage empathy, right? The depth of your capacity to articulate your thoughts. And then there is the, the transcendent fa factors, right? This has been really late for me, really hard for me to accept because spirituality was a big source of bullshit in the communities that I grew up in. But the real, but I think it's fundamentally true that like anger is a kind of force that, that precedes us. You know, anger didn't start the first time you got mad. It exists in everybody. So it's a kind of, it's a kind of force that you have to be, it's a principle that you have to be in right relationship to, um, in, in a, in a sort of general way. And then anytime that you get a group of agents together, there's a kind of collective intelligence that comes out of that. That's beyond them. If you've been on a sports team, it's like, there's a spirit to that team that's not localizable in any one agent and you you should have it right like the idea of school spirit is like this seems like super dumb now but it's real it's real because there's there's ways in which information and emotion transfers through this big neural net of human beings that so the same as how they transfer through the neural net that's your mind and you're impacted by it everyone is sort of floating around in this culture space. 
Um, so what's your relationship to the transcendent forces? What, you know, like an old school Christian perspective, you might call the powers and principalities that we live within. So you need to have, uh, you need to, meaning in life comes from good connectedness and greater increasing depth of connectedness to these four or five fundamental factors. And we believe that to achieve that, you need practices. You need practices that intentionally help you cultivate your capacities in that. And those are something like a somatic and structural practice, something like a locomotive exploratory practice like parkour, uh, some kind of manipulative practice, which could be, you know, the fundamental things that all children do is just play with balls and sticks and ropes and dolls, right? But that becomes, can you make fire? Can you shoot a bow and arrow? Can you craft a table? And then can you connect well to other people? And that starts with nursing as a baby and becomes rough and tumble play. And then it's only out of that, that the dialogical, the storytelling, all that other stuff develops. And we, we don't understand that. And we've, we've actually cut ourselves off from the primal aspects. We don't, we say, don't climb that, not realizing that's how we learn the world. So don't wrestle because we don't realize that's how we actually begin to deeply attune to another human nervous system. And so we, we don't understand why we can't talk to each other in this culture, right? But we're just basically really fragile and poorly mapped and incapable of deep understanding of each other and incapable of deep understanding of ourselves because we haven't gone through the fundamental developmental tools that precede the ability to even do philosophy. This is why I bring up the Greeks and the, the, the gymnasia precedes philosophia because we, we've, we, we remember Socrates and his words, but we don't remember the practices that gave rise to them. And you're doing a deep work, bringing those practices back to the forefront and presenting them in a way that is compelling. You say, you say you're not a house builder, but I, I do perceive you as a house builder in a way. It's just a different different kind of house. The uh, you know house within the house. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to build the house that will prevent the uh, the zombie apocalypse once it once it hits. Talk to my dad or my brother. <laughs> yeah, it's it's this house of the body mind that we're sort of always inhabiting and yeah. or just building built you know by this wonk in this wonky way by by everything. But it it is. It, it, man, it's, I love the, the thought that like, there are all these ideas out there that you're presenting in a, in a very well thought out way that, you know, it's just an idea, right? It, you're, it's in your head and, and you can communicate it through these symbols called language. And then if we're lucky, it comes to me and it sticks and it improves my life. And, and if I'm able to do that to somebody else, then, then we can all sort of collectively rise and, and have a higher quality of life and a better experience on this planet. I've, I found great meaning in that, you know, simple formula where just at a base level, we can find great ideas, we can integrate them and we can share them. We can all have a better experience on, on this ride, whatever this is. And, and there are yeah. many profound thinkers like, like Jordan Peterson, like John Verveke, like, like, as you mentioned, that are sort of tinkering with the software of the mind and, and the human race and, and trying to find where did we go wrong and what can we do to, to right the ship and aspects like, like everything that you're outlining are, are all very powerful, all very powerful ways that we can enjoy this experience more. It, 
doesn't require pharmaceuticals, you know, necessarily. <laughs> we can we can do this without a lot of that stuff. And it's it's something that I've I've been exploring as well these past few years. So I don't have a beautiful forest around me here in Los Angeles. So I grew up in New Hampshire where I was surrounded by trees. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't I don't remember anybody really climbing them. You know, it's it's a, a fascinating yeah. thing that this aspect of climbing trees. But here I, you know, have a beach and it's a totally different terrain than it was, but I've been playing with these, a lot of these concepts sort of myself independently of like, how can I challenge myself on this flat plane, just using my own body, whether it's a handstand or some sort of yoga maneuver, a different way to sort of engage. And I have people asking me, inquiring, hey, how can I, you know, what are you doing? What are you up to? And I'm trying to communicate, trying to form community around some of these practices of movement, nature, and, and integrating a lot of what you're speaking about, right? It's the, the meaning of movement, having challenge and, and being able to overcome that challenge, that hero's journey. It's all, it's all pretty powerful. And I almost contemplate, like the other day I was, I was thinking, maybe this is just, you know, a, an open question, an idea that we can kind of sort of play around is like, how could we, how could one create something like an open source movement community where if you come up with this idea like hey we're all going to gather you know somewhere accessible out in nature anyone is free to join and then that sort of process could repeat in other other places right someone could just say hey i'm going to meet here we're going to be doing this thing and we're all going to be sort of gathering in community finding meaning and movement like something like that could be really powerful precisely what happened with the parkour community right like these videos started to circulate of david bell and the yamakaze and uh and a bunch of people popped up online on a forum and said, hey, we're going to be in South Bank in London if anyone wants to come jump over stuff with us. And some people did. And then the forums grew. And then other people started creating forums and saying, hey, we're going to be at Freeway Park in Seattle. We're going to be at you know this park in, in, in Denver, um, Cat Fountain in Denver. So we, we've been – that happened, you know – it's interesting how the technology has impacted that because the, the age of the internet forum was actually really great for the creation of small communities. And once we all moved on to social media, it has collapsed in a lot of ways. I still don't know how to recover that, but uh, we're doing our best to try to create a, a system of coaches that can hold space for people and build it. And we want to, within that model, have the um the community and the and the so the, the community and the academy essentially right where you can you can come in and get a class and then you can go meet with us and play what i've noticed over the years is that as my skill has grown it becomes harder for other people to just be around me doing stuff right they they need me to coach them it's like it's not it's not satisfying for them to just hang out while I do stuff that they can't do. And they can't think for themselves of what they can do very easily while I'm jamming at my level, right? There's something that's inhibitory for someone who's a novice about actually training around an expert. Like I always imagine it's like, imagine if you were like kind of plinking along with a guitar with some friends, like Jimi Hendrix came in and just started riffing, right? Not that I'm saying I'm the Jimi Hendrix in movement, but um, far from it. But, but there is this aspect of like, once someone shows a skill level that you just can't keep up with, like your instinct is to just stop and watch. <laughs> um, and so there's a, it's a challenge to sort of like navigate that. 
um, how we we facilitate that um, community that's welcoming to all levels in an open source way with also like creating structures that allow people to scaffold their skill up using the capacities of the people who have the highest skill in the community. And that's, you know, that is necessarily kind of an apprenticeship, mentorship, student teacher model, which um, is very hard to do without making it paid. <laughs> right. It's hard to, it's hard to achieve high levels of expertise in your spare time. So uh, I'm all for it, right? Like if, you know, if I come down to LA and teach a, a retreat or you come up here and do one of our retreats and you go back and want to just share whatever material that you get with anyone who wants to show up locally and jump off a, a sand dune with you, then like, great. Uh, but, but that's just what I've seen. How far are you from Chatsworth? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. Chatsworth is up in the valley. It's a, uh, it's one of the best tree spots that I've been. So it's not too far away from you if you're in LA, but not too far away could be like up to two hours. So depending on what part of LA you're in. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on traffic too, but it's, it's probably, yeah, probably yeah. with some sort of day trip range. It's uh, what, what sort of trees are trees are up there? They're coastal live oak trees. They're absolutely amazing. I've actually gone from tree to tree for like 30 to 40 yards there. Um, and, and it's actually right next to Stony Point, which is one of the best bouldering areas. So literally across the street from each other. Um, or, yeah. Check it out. Chatsworth Park. Very cool. I'm going to head up there one of these days. Check it out. And the way mm -hmm. that you traverse within the trees is very cool as well. I'm, I'm going to make sure to link all kinds of videos down below so people can see these things because it's very engaging visually to see unitry and, and yeah. jump from from limb to limb very something very primal about it and, and deep in a way that's like oh i want to yeah, yeah. try that <laughs> 60 million years or to 90 million years we were arboreal animals we've only been kind of primarily terrestrial for maybe the last two million maybe less and uh, even today hunter foragers utilize arboreal environments far more than uh, we've kind of given credit for it's not like we came out of the trees and just stayed out like in most hunter forager environments most environments if you're a hunter forager the highest density calorie resources are in the trees because that's where you have fruit and honey and eggs that's the easiest place to get all of those and so hunter foragers actually climb a lot um, and so there's a reason that children everywhere in the world love to climb trees it's very very deeply built human beings and there are benefits beyond simply the uh, mechanics of movement too. You've got the phyton sides from the trees, the terpenes, the negative ions, all those are well-proven ways mm -hmm. to boost mood and increase the function of our immune system. So these are these, yeah. you know, little sources of health that are just out there kind of all around doing their thing. And yeah. you can tap into that. Some gym slash healthy pharmacopoeia, right? Brilliant. Yeah. And just like, yeah, it's right there, right there for pretty much everybody. Uh, you know, we've got these, we've got these trees accessible that, that can be used, and <laughs> it's it is wild how few people climbing trees given the given the benefits. But it's uh, you know, it's definitely. Have you seen since you share this online? Have you seen people like falling? 
from cheese is there is there like a certain level of, of risk there that anyone would want to be aware of oh sure i'm sure there's risk right like i have fallen out of trees um but no i've never seen I, like nobody's ever tagged me and said hey i i got hurt falling out of a tree um i I'm amazed actually at how, how, how far some of this stuff is going and how safe people remain. Uh, people often think parkour is like this very dangerous risk-taking sport, but statistically it's actually really safe. Um, the injury rates are, you know, below those, uh, they're like those of indoor rock climbing. And, uh, yeah, like if you mess up at height, you can die but we move at speeds that are much more kind of reasonable for a human being. So like all the skiers and snowboarders and skateboarders that I know by the time they're in their forties, they're like patched together with duct tape. Um, and the parkour athletes for the most part are, you know, you may have had one or two big injuries, but, uh, pretty healthy, really. That is contrary to, to the popular perception. I think maybe because the highlights are always these like, you know, long jumps that are just like those are the ones that get the million views so everyone gets their perception form from these like daring feats of amazing sort of extreme sports style accomplishment yeah you know i've 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 done jumps between tree branches 30 feet off the ground or if the branch breaks like i'm falling 30 feet uh it's you know i never never move the same again after that uh but i just i'm very 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 thoughtful and methodical about the way that I do it and operate within my capacity. And I know lots of people in the parkour community who have done the same thing with roofs, you know, jumping 200 feet up rooftop to rooftop. And we've all been injured, right? But not doing that because <laughs> you don't do it if there's any chance that you're going to mess up and you build your competence really, really high before you try. So generally, very few people that I know have ever been injured from rooftop stuff. Uh, there, there have been a few. Usually, it's pretty young people who are who are experimenting really way outside of their capacity level. But the guys you see who are putting out consistent highlights of of uh, of jumping between rooftops, like they've been doing that for years and years and years and doing it safely, right? And they may be banged up from their training on the ground level. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's an amazing, amazing part of movement within the broader array. And I've really appreciated, just to link it back to where we started, the connection of the body and mind and how movement and affects the way the mind works. I deeply appreciated the way that you're able to perform aerial cognitive acrobatics and, and able to transcend these <laughs> you know, the terrain of the mind and, and go out on a limb. And it, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and, and sharing your time here with me. I've really enjoyed everything that you put out there. So just want to say thank you for, for that. Really enjoyed our, our conversation. Is is there any sort of last sentiment or idea that, that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, I, if people want to get started, just take a walk. Go somewhere beautiful and natural. Take a walk. If you see a tree branch that you can hang from, hang from it. Explore. Take a deep breath sit in the park, watch the sun, get some sun and light as much as you can. That's, that's pretty much how it starts. Right. And follow your curiosity. You don't, um, you don't need like super advanced skills or strength to start exploring 
how to locomote through the world. It's in every human being. You just got to give yourself permission to do it. Great, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.